Welcome to the Grace at a Glance podcast from Grace Church of Linnets and Grace Creative. We are a Jesus church where the gospel is central, where we love Jesus, build people, and lead revival. Thanks for joining us. It's awesome to see you here this morning, and I trust that uh, as we've come into the presence of Christ, as these little ones have brought us into the reminder that Jesus loves the little children, that your hearts are warmed, especially as we move into this Advent and Christmas season. You know, uh, I've had the privilege of raising three sons, and uh, you just heard one of them, and uh, not to tell stories out of school, but I can remember when he was little and laying in a crib. And uh, I can remember when the other ones were that too, and the day they were born and the joy that they brought to our family. And the fact that now, with the years having gone on, and if you're a person who's had a few decades behind you now, uh, that reality that one day, those little ones grow up to become adult ones. And it's not too far into the journey between their birth and when they become adults that they begin to express their judgments. And especially their judgments about the opinions their parents hold, right? It doesn't take long before those children begin to say, Dad, why are you wearing those socks? Or, Dad, how could you put saltine crackers in milk? Or whatever other things that they discern in their judgment that they don't like. Sons, daughters, our children grow up and they become discerners and choice makers and judges. We're going to look at two passages in the scriptures today that show Jesus as a son born in a cradle, and Jesus as an adult son who becomes discerning. Now, if you've been with us at all, or you've heard a little bit about what we're talking about this month, we're in a series uh, called Only Light, and the emphasis of the series is focusing in on a term that Jesus used of himself. Jesus used the term son of man many times in the Bible when he referred to himself. The son of man, he says. And the word son of man, translated into modern English, actually means human being. So when Jesus, the eternal God, made a baby who is sent from God as God's son and becomes a human being, that is such an impactful reality for Jesus that when he references himself, he calls himself human being. And we've looked at this month how God blesses us through a human being, God teaches us through a human being, and this morning, how God judges us through a human being. So let's look at a passage you're very familiar with in Luke chapter 2, and you remember the story. We're going to read it here. It's of shepherds and angels, and a decree has been made by Caesar in Rome, And all of the people have to go back to their hometowns in order to register for a census and in order so that they can pay taxes. So the Roman king 
has made a declaration. That's the context for why Joseph and Mary are in Bethlehem. That's David's hometown, or uh, Joseph's hometown. He's a descendant of David. And so they're there for that reason. Town is full, lodging is full. The only place they can find to stay is a, a stable, and the only place for a newborn baby, a manger. That's the context. We're familiar with it. We're going to read it. But then we're going to read a second passage where Jesus is now not only an adult man and a grown man, but a conquering, victorious king. It's a much lesser-known passage, but it's an incredible passage to reflect on in light of Luke chapter 2, and it's found in Matthew chapter 25. So we're going to read these two stories, and they're just a few short verses. But here's what I'd like to ask you, the audience, to do while I'm reading. I want you, as the passages come up and are read, to begin to reflect upon all of the things in each of the passages that are similar and a couple of things that are different. All right? That's your assignment as the teacher is speaking. Okay, here we go. Luke chapter 2, verses 6 through 12. While they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She's in Bethlehem. It's time for Jesus to come into the earth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. All right, so that's Luke chapter 2, a story we're very familiar with at Christmas time. We have our nativity scenes. We have pictures of angels and later of wise men, etc. Now, I want us to listen to the next passage. Consider the things that are similar and the few things that are different. Here is Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 33. And this is Jesus, who has been referred to as a son in Luke chapter 2 referring now to himself as the Son of Man. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. All right, what I want to do is to take these two passages and I want to compare them for you. And in these three comparisons, I hope, give you the information you need to think wisely about the Son of Man, the Son who's born in Bethlehem, who grows up and calls himself the Son of Man, who is anointed by God as a human being to sit on a glorious throne. So, join me as we think about the comparisons. Here are three of them in the passage. Let's compare first his humble birth 
with his majestic return. Did you notice that in both stories, there are sheep? Now, when God wants to use an animal metaphor to refer to people, he uses sheep as an animal to make a metaphor about the nature of people. I would think that God might choose other animals. When he refers to King David or to Jesus, he often calls him the lion. But when he refers to humanity, he uses sheep. And so we shouldn't be surprised that in the story of Jesus, all through his story, from birth to death to resurrection to return, the idea of sheep play a prominent role. We are sheep, the Bible tells us, the people of God's pasture. Now remember, the Bible was written in an agrarian society. They were farmers and shepherds and people like that. So they understood these metaphors. We don't understand them as well. In Lancaster County, what we, what we understand are the smells that these things produce. <laughs> but God has decided to help us understand something about ourselves by calling us sheep. What are sheep like? Sheep are fearful. Sheep are afraid. Sheep are not the smartest animal in the barn. Sheep will follow the voice of whoever gives the strongest influence on them. Sheep get themselves into messes. Sheep oftentimes fall upside down and land on their back and can't get up. That's called being downcast. And all the blood flows out of their legs and down into their body. And if they stay in that position, they'll die. What also is true about a sheep? That if a sheep is going to thrive, a sheep has to have a shepherd. And you'll notice in the stories, both stories, that there is a shepherd involved. The shepherds are keeping their flocks by night. An angel appears and the shepherds are told, don't be afraid. When Jesus talks about himself later in life, he will say, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. And, of course, in the passage we just saw in Matthew 25, like a shepherd, he will separate his flock. So, both stories have sheep. Both stories have shepherds. Both stories have angels. The angels appear in the sky and the shepherds are terrified. And I think, really, if angels appeared to me, I'd be terrified too, because every person in the Bible who ever has an experience with an angel falls down as if they were wanted to die. Apparently, angels are terrifying. They're always telling people when they show up, don't be afraid, but I'm a sheep. <laughs> I'm supposed to be afraid. Don't be afraid. They must be glorious. They must be unbelievably fantastic in their appearance. They must be magnificent because every time they show up in any story in the Bible, everybody's afraid. So there's angels in both passages. Angels that appear glorious and talk about the glory of God and angels who appear next to the glorious God and who worship his glory. And think about this fourth thing. Both stories have a place to repose. In the story of Jesus... His place of repose in his incarnation is this cradle. It's a, it's a food trough for animals. That's what it is, this manger. Uh, and basically, it's what the animals ate out of. 
But apparently it was wide enough and long enough that if it was cleaned out a little bit, she could take her baby wrapped up and lay him there. So his place of rest on earth was this manger. And if you read anything about the story of Jesus, what do you find about Jesus? He's always needing to rest. He rests here in the story of his birth. Later on, it says after he was doing miracles, he was tired and sleepy and he needed to rest. Later, after traveling through Samaria and and, and sitting down at the well, it says he was tired and sleepy. Jesus slept a lot. And rightly so, he was a human being. Fully God, mysteriously fully man, experiencing the same things as us. He needed to rest, and he had a hard time finding places to rest because he said this about himself. He said, flocks of the air, uh, birds of the air have nests, and foxes in the field have dens. But the Son of Man, the human being, has nowhere to lay his head. In the story of the manger, he rested. Mary put him there in swaddling clothes. But you know, there's another kind of rest that Jesus has as King of kings and Lord of lords. The Bible says that after Jesus said it was finished and bowed his head on the cross and gave up his life, and then after he rose from the dead three days later and ascended into heaven, the Bible says he sat down at God's right hand. Now, Kings would only sit down on their throne in front of others after they've won a battle. This idea is taken from all of the Middle Eastern cultures and also from the Roman culture. When a Roman Caesar would conquer an enemy in battle, he would march that enemy through the streets, leading a procession. The procession was a celebration as the people of Rome celebrated their king's conquering. And after all was done, and the enemy was vanquished, and the foes of the Caesar were made to kneel before him, only then would the Caesar sit down. The task of victory achieved, the final pronouncement of judgment to be had. And those prisoners were then often sent off to prison or death. But that kind of rest was not a sleepy little boy who needed to go to bed because he was cranky. That kind of rest was a conquering king who had rest from his enemies because he had conquered them. Did you notice that in the second story in Matthew 25, the Son of Man, it says, sat down on his glorious throne? Isn't that awesome? You have shepherds, and you have sheep, and you have angels, and you have a place to rest. It's wise for us to consider this baby, not just in the manger, but also in his majestic return. Secondly, we should compare the king and his declaration as king by some people with his declaration as king over all people. So what we see in the stories is that both stories have those who worship. See that? There are shepherds in the field, and the angels say, hey, 
Today over in Bethlehem is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Don't be afraid. Go worship him. In every story of Jesus, when people come across him, as he comes to do his good work in life, in almost all of those stories, there is some hesitancy on the part of people to approach Christ in worship. Now, some run to Christ, but some want to come to Christ but feel hesitant to. And this is a story in Luke 2 here of shepherds who must be encouraged to go see him. Don't be afraid. There's a Savior born for you, and his name is Jesus Christ the Lord. And I think God, if you're reading this story this morning with me, would say to you, if you're a little bit afraid of coming to Christ, that it's okay. Maybe you know that Jesus knows all the things of your life. Maybe you feel that you don't measure up. Maybe you are afraid of Almighty God, and there's a fear that's in your heart. Jesus came to make sure you understand that you can come to God through him so that you won't be afraid. And so whatever you might be wrestling with and might be saying, you know, I don't know, I'm a little bit afraid because God knows my life and it hasn't been perfect. No, your life hasn't been. And neither has mine. But his was. And as a human being, he lived a perfect life so that his record of obedience could be placed on your record. And so you can come to Jesus. In fact, Jesus invites you to come to him. Did you know that Jesus never invited anybody to come to church? Did you know that? <laughs> we invite people to come to church because we want them to see our grandkids singing, right? It's, I mean, I have to say, I think like, like the best service of the year is when these kids stand up here and they're sometimes singing and sometimes <laughs> doing other things. <laughs> uh, but Jesus said, come to me. And I will give you rest. Let the little children come to me. And Jesus says, unless you come to me like a little child, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus knows that he loves kids. And kids know that he loves them. And if you're here today and you're afraid, I want you to remember what Jesus says. Come to me as a little child and I will give you rest. And if you need rest, Jesus invites you like the shepherd to overcome your fear and come to him today. He says, if anybody comes to me, I won't, tell, I won't cast them away. So there are those in both of these stories who've come to worship. And both of these stories have a king. Later on, we'll see wise men that show up in a little different story of the New Testament that we celebrate at Christmas as well. And they came and they say to Herod, hey, we've come to worship the king. And when they come to Jesus and see the Christ child, they present the king with their gifts. And of course, the second story has a king also, seated high on a throne. In the first story, there were three kings, the king of Rome and the king of Palestine and Jerusalem, that's Herod, and the king in the manger, that's Jesus. But in the last story, only one king, only one Lord. Both stories have believers. Eventually, the wise men and the shepherds and others make their way to the presence of Christ, right? In fact, God gives us 
the opportunity to be believers now. He gives us the choice of coming now. And their stories have both believers and unbelievers in them. There were plenty of people who, even though they knew the passage of where the Christ was supposed to be born, and they were religiously knowledgeable, that even though they knew that Bethlehem was the place, they never got up and went to worship the king because they didn't believe. And in every heart across every place, there are believers and unbelievers, and the second story demonstrates that. It says, there are those who, like sheep, have come to Jesus and belong to his flock, and there are those who do not. So these stories have some people worshiping the king in the first one, but everybody worshiping the king in the second. Now let's go to the final thing. We want to compare his incarnation with his exaltation. Both of these stories display God's mercy. The Bible says that God looks down from heaven and he knows that we are but dust. Some people question whether God is a God of love because they see the evil in the world, they see the pain in the world, they see the suffering in the world, and perhaps they themselves have experienced that suffering and pain. And they say, well, is God really a God of love? Is God really care? Does God really know and understand? And why does God permit this to happen? Here's the Christian understanding of this, all right? The enemy of God who brought evil into the world, his name is Satan. And Satan tricked humanity into sin. And now that sin and evil permeates every person on planet Earth. And apparently, the death that that sin brought is so difficult to overcome that it took God becoming a man in history. After years of promised coming, he comes. And only after years of working through people's hearts and lives does he able finally to overcome the one who brought death into the world, namely Satan. Because the Bible says that at the end, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. How hard is evil and sin to remove from my heart? How hard is it to remove warring nations who want to acquire other person's lands? How hard is it to stop a conflict when it's been started through acts of terrorism and responded to by acts of loyalty? How hard must it be for God to remove this wickedness from planet Earth? So hard that he himself had to become one of humanity so that he himself could destroy the enemy of humanity and of God, and so hard that it required God himself to die on planet Earth. The incarnation is the display of God's mercy. I'm not sure we ever really think about this, but this is true. When the world went to hell in the Garden of Eden through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, God was not obligated to save it. He could have just written it off. He could have just said, well, I'll go try somewhere else. 
Have you ever thought about that? Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. And by not just letting us go our own way as a human race into destruction and into the abyss, he sent his son as a way to stop the evil that was ongoing. That little baby in the manger is God's act of mercy on humanity for that little baby in the manger in his sinless life and perfect death and powerful resurrection overcame the enemy of God, the enemy of me, and the enemy of you. Interestingly enough, have you noticed that in the passage, in both passages, there's a lot of interest in things related to nations not sure what that was. That was not a secret signal for me to quit early. <laughs> what does it mean when a preacher looks at his watch? Nothing. It means nothing. <laughs> no, seriously, we're going to wrap this up here soon. In the story in Luke 2 where Jesus is born, you have the, the Roman emperor, the governor, the uh, authorities, and the whole Jesus story is a battle between Rome and Israel, right? And these nations that are warring with one another. In the Matthew 25 passage, it says that all of the nations are gathered there and that the Son of Man judges all of them. That's the one you live in too. The nations are a concern to God. In fact, the Bible says that God put people in the nations where he wanted them to live. So all of the nations of the world matter to God, every single one of them. Not just this one. Every single one of them. That's why Christians, no matter where they've lived in life, whether it's this country or elsewhere, have always sent missionaries to other nations, right? In fact, you live in a town... Right? You live in a town that was founded by Moravians. You know who the Moravians were? The Moravians were the first great missionary movement in the world. They had a prayer meeting. Are you ready for this? They had a prayer meeting that lasted for 100 straight years. In their prayer rooms, they had at least one person praying consecutively for 100 years for the nations of the world to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. You know one of the places in America that Count von Zinzendorf, the founder of the Moravians, sent his missionaries? Lidditz, Pennsylvania. In fact, the witness of Jesus in this town is still real based on the Moravians, right? Because downtown there at the city center, where you have that nativity scene, that nice porcelain nativity scene, somebody tried to get that removed because of separation of church and state. How can Lidditzboro put that there? Guess what? It didn't belong to Lidditzboro. It belongs to the Moravians. Their missionary witness is still gone on right downtown in Nazareth, Pennsylvania, and in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Why? Because those Germans and those Swiss decided that it was important for them to take the message of Jesus Christ to the nations. We do the same. The history of our movement is a history of people who've gone on mission. 
left their homes, left the comfort of their families, and sacrificed for Jesus in faraway places. God loves the nations. And in Matthew 25, it says, all of the nations. Did you see that? So when you listen to your nation and its leaders talk, remember that God loves the people across the sea as much as he loves us. He loves the nations. He loves every color of skin. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Do you ever sing that? Why do you sing it? Because it's true. In Jesus' teaching, everybody is the same. Oh, I, I look at the world and it wants justice and it wants uh, equality. And if you really understood the teaching of Jesus, you would understand that's exactly what Jesus wants too. And in fact, when we all get to heaven, we're all going to be there equally because we all got there the same way through the mercy and love of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the nations have an interest, both in Luke 2 and Matthew 25. Let's get ready to close. Both stories display God's justice. Jesus Christ came to bring justice to the sinner. His death on the cross was God saying, that should, Tim Bowl, that should be you. You understand that I'm standing up here not any better than anyone else in this room. That ordination and having a title means nothing. Before a holy God, born a sinner like all other sinners, I have nothing to defend myself against the wrongs that I've committed in my life. The only thing that I have to plead to God is what? I have a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And when he went to Calvary and died on that cross for me, I know, O oh God, that you punished him instead of punishing me. You should have punished me. I deserve that cross. God, why in your mercy did you not punish me? And God is going to reply, Well, Tim, I love you. Justice had to be done. Your sin needed to be paid for. And I agreed with the counsel of my wisdom that I would send my son to pay the debt that you owed. So listen, the story of Jesus is a story not only of God's mercy, it's a story of God's justice. God has justly punished your sin in Jesus Christ. And that's why you don't need to be afraid of God if you come to God in Christ because your wrongs, your shortcomings, and your failures have all been cared for at the cross by the sinless Son of God who calls himself the Son of Man, one human being giving his life for another. So Jesus invites everybody to come to him. All of us are sinners and can't measure up. Jesus was sinless and did measure up. And God is willing to put on your record for all time and all eternity that you were perfectly sinless because he's taken that record of Christ and placed it on you. That's awesome, isn't it? I'm wearing clothes of righteousness. 
placed on me by the grace of God, not because of my own works, but because of his grace. Finally, and we close with this, both stories declare that a choice is made. We live in a world where you hear a lot of talk about pro-choice. We live in a world where you have a lot of talk about your rights. We live in a world where you get to make many decisions. You get to make decisions today about whether you'd come here and worship, what clothes you would put on when you came, what football team you're going to root for, and I'm ready to make a change on that. <laughs> so I'm listening to offers. <laughs> Convince me I should be changing my uniform. Um, we all get to make choices on this side of the world and in this life. And if Jesus tells us anything, he tells us that he reveals the fact as he offers himself to people freely that you get to make a choice. You do. There were some who came and worshiped Jesus and there were some who did not. There were some who came and believed that he was the son of God and there were those who came and did not. There were some who said that he was the Messiah, and there were some who said, you're not. And the genius of Jesus is that you cannot be neutral with him. You have to decide. Is he who he says he is? And can he do what he says he can do? Or can't he? And that, dear friends, is your choice. You have to decide. And Jesus invites you to come to him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come to me if you, if, you, if you are looking for satisfaction. Come to me if your soul feels dry. Come to me if you're thirsty. Come to me and let me satisfy you with eternal things. And Jesus makes an offer of himself. He doesn't offer religion, by the way. Jesus was no fan of religion. We understand that, right? Jesus did not like religion. Religion was made up of hypocrites and people whose heart weren't right with God. Jesus came to offer relationship with God. When we meet as a church, the only thing that keeps us from being a dead religion that just has rules and services and traditions, the only thing that makes us different is that we have a living God at the heart of what we do, a living Savior who says that he comes into our life when we invite him in. That's the only thing that makes us different, right? It's the thing that we long for. Jesus was no friend of religion. Did you ever hear what he said to religious people? You're whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones. That doesn't sound like somebody who likes religious people very much, does it? And Jesus said the same. He said, I didn't come to save people who think they're healthy. I came to save people who know that they're sick. And that's what it means to admit that you need a savior. That you've got a problem inside called sin. And that you can make the choice for a Savior who will wash you, cleanse you, make you whiter than snow. And he offers himself freely. You don't have to do anything but take him as your own. You don't have to work. You don't have to do good works. You don't have to be better morally than immorally. All you got to do is come to Jesus. There's a thief dying next to Jesus on the cross. He's a criminal and he's dying. And he looks over to Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise.
If Jesus can do that for a thief who has no lifetime left to put good works better than bad works in his life, then Jesus must have saved him some other way. How did he do it? By the word of his grace. And if you will call out on the grace of God and make that your choice, Jesus, by your word, save my soul. Make me right with God. He promises to do that freely. And he says, today is the day of salvation. So maybe you need to make that choice. Plenty of people in the stories of Jesus had a choice. They had to make. So do you. And Jesus invites you to make it for him. So when we talk about kids saying yes to Jesus or adults saying yes to Jesus and we plug light bulbs in, that's what it means. It means I acknowledge that I need Christ and I invite him into my life and he removes my sin and gives me life eternal and abundant and the promise that death has been conquered and that I will live forever. Don't you want to say yes to that good news? That's a choice you can make today. In the Matthew 25 story, as Jesus sits on the throne, there's no human being there who's going to make any choice except for one. In that story, the Son of Man, the human being, makes the choice. Did you notice it says in the passage that he separates as the shepherd those on his right and those on his left? He makes the choice. In this life, dear friend, you can make the choice. But there's a day coming when, the God, when God's Son returns, and you'll no longer have the choice. It will be made for you. The Bible says that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. I would encourage you today, would you bow your head and close your eyes with me as we close in prayer? And as I pray, would you reach out to Jesus and say yes? If you'll accept Jesus today by faith, you will get to see Jesus by sight in all of his glory. Set apart as one of his flock, the sheep of his pasture, sins removed and life insured. Don't you want that today? Pray with me if you do. Jesus, be merciful to me, the sinner. Be my Savior. Wash me clean. Make me right with God. Give me eternal life as this free gift that's been offered. I trust you today, Lord Jesus. I worship you, O Son of Man. I hope you made that prayer. And if you did, take the yes card out. that's in front of you. Fill it out. Drop it in the offering box on the way out. Let me know you made this choice. Jesus sealed the message in our hearts. I pray it now in Christ's name. Amen. Hosting for this podcast has been brought to you by Anchor from Spotify. Our intro and outro song is Creative Mind by Ben Sound. From all of us here at Grace Church, Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.